Welcome to the Sermon Podcast for Canton Church, a campus of Mount Perrin North. We exist to help people live a Christ-centered life, and we hope that you are encouraged by today's message. Hey, when I was in high school, uh, we had this magician that went to our school. And when I say magician, I'm not talking about like this guy like did these like little card tricks. Like when you weren't looking, he looked at the card and then said, oh, is your card the seven of hearts? I mean like he was a legit magician. So like when other people graduated, they went and did these really cool things and went to college and whatever. He started going on to cruise ships as the entertainment. Like it, he was a legit magician. And when I was in 10th grade, he did, uh, in, in our like school talent show, he did the most amazing trick I had ever seen to that point. Now I've seen you know, some tricks like this on some of those like uh, TV shows that show how magic tricks happen, and it ruins it for me, and so I choose not to watch those anymore. Um, but what happened is that he um, called somebody random out of the audience, and maybe it was a plant, I don't know, but it still doesn't change the fact that this was an amazing trick. And so what he did is he took a brand new deck of cards that was in cellophane. Maybe he has a cellophane machine at his house, and it wasn't a brand new deck of cards. I have no idea, but it looked like a new deck of cards. And so he unwrapped the deck of cards, and he had the person then open the deck of cards and take it, and it looked like they were just brand new, like they were still in order. It still had like the direction card with it, and all the jokers were in the deck, which we know we would have taken out if we were you know, playing cards with them. And so all those cards were brand new. And so he asked this person, he gave them a marker, and he said, hey, will you write your name? Pick any card and write your name on the card. And so they just picked this random card. I think it was the Four of Hearts. I'm trying to remember back that far. I'm not quite as old as some of you, but I am old enough that I might have forgotten that it was the Four of Hearts. So it was the Four of Hearts, I think. And they wrote their name on that card. They put it back in the deck. And then he took the deck and he shuffled it up, right? And then he took that deck of cards and he put a rubber band around it. And then what he did is he took that deck of cards in his right hand. He asked that person to blow on it. I don't think that had anything to do with it, but it was a pretty cool feature of the trick. And so they blew on the deck of cards, and then he said, okay, we're all here in the audience, here in the gymnasium of this high school. We're all going to count to three. And so everybody started counting. One, two, three. And he threw the deck of cards up into the air. And the rubber band came off. It must have been the worst rubber band ever. I'm not sure. But the rubber band came off, and when it did... All of the cards just went like flying around. And I mean, it was crazy. You're looking at chaos here. I mean, there were cards going everywhere in that gymnasium. And so it took a little time. There's like epic music like that playing and really cool stuff. And so he said, okay, I want you to pick up all these cards. And so we picked up, you know, he had some other people come. They picked up all the cards. And so they started going through them. They could not find the four of hearts. And they couldn't find the card that had the guy's name on it. And so we're all like, oh, my goodness. This trick must have failed. Like, where's the card? And so he said, hey, um. Look straight up. And this spotlight, like real serious, like if I had a spotlight this morning, I would do it. This spotlight like panned from him all the way up into the ceiling of the gymnasium. It was like 30 feet high maybe. And on the roof of the gym, facing down, was the four of hearts with that guy's name written on it. Exactly. (laughs) Let me just tell you. We had that guy checked out for all kinds of like demon possession and like weird <laughs> stuff. And I'm still not entirely sure. Like I've watched the special on Fox. I'm still not entirely sure how he did that trick. Like I can't figure out how in the world he got the card that had been signed and put into his hand inside the rubber. Like how he got it to stick to the ceiling. Like I've got a pretty good arm. I'm not sure I could throw a card all the way to the ceiling of that gym. And I'm not sure if I got it to the ceiling, I could get it to be, you know, face down and stuck to the roof. 
So maybe he came in with a 32-foot ladder earlier in the day and scribbled a name on it and glued it. to. I have no idea. But here's what I know about magic because I have watched some of those shows on Fox. What you see is not always what's actually happening, right? You guys understand the kind of the basic principle of, you know, these magicians. What they're doing is they're doing one trick, but usually they're also doing something else away from kind of the main attraction. So I've racked my brain. I've tried to think, like, where did I miss it? Like, what was he doing? Because it was some type of sleight of hand, some type of misdirection. Maybe while he was having something, you know, blown on over here, there was something happening back here. Maybe, you know, maybe he hypnotized all of us for like three minutes so that he could go up and glue it to the roof. I have no idea. But I know that there was something that happened that was away from the main kind of center of attention that's why you see magicians use, like, you know, the lovely assistant, because that is to draw your eyes towards the lovely assistant while he's over here taking a rabbit out of a box and putting it into his hat before you even notice. Like, there's some type of misdirection, there's some type of sleight of hand that changes what's actually happening in front of you and what you're focused on to what the actual trick is all about. Now, we're talking about the story of Jonah today. And for the next four weeks, we're going to spend a little bit of time in Jonah chapter 1, and then Jonah chapter 2, and then Jonah chapter 3, and Jonah chapter 4. Don't you love that? Aren't you glad there's not 57 chapters in Jonah? Because <laughs> it'd be hard to preach on that for more than a year. But we're going to spend one week apiece on each of the chapters in the book of Jonah in this series entitled Pursuit, really looking at the story of Jonah. And so today we want to spend some time in Jonah chapter 1, but here's how I want us to connect the dots between this magician in my high school and the story of Jonah, because here's what we know about the story of Jonah. It was just depicted in the epic trailer video that just started and kind of preceded me here. We most often refer to the story of Jonah as what? The guy that got eaten by a whale. And that's a huge part of the story. Like if I got eaten by a whale, I would write a book about it. I would sell the movie rights to it. Like that's a huge part of the story. But I, I'm afraid if we're not careful, we focus so much over here on the lovely assistant, the whale that we miss this incredible truth in God's story in Jonah chapter 1, Jonah chapter 2, Jonah chapter 3, and Jonah chapter 4. So let's read today in the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to start, and fittingly for a four-week series, we're going to start in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 1, and we're probably just going to kind of read this book together for the next four weeks. So here's what we got in the first three verses, Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because it is, its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port and after paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now a couple things you need to know here. It tells us who Jonah is. He is the son of Amittai. Now, Amittai means my truth. So in the Bible, names, especially in the Old Testament, they mean something. Often they want you to know it means something. So this idea here that we know who his father was, we understand that his father name means truth. So we're talking about the son of truth here. Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, we know that Jonah is the son of truth. The reason that's important is because he has been called by God to very specifically go to a town that is lacking truth that is lacking God. It's, it's, it's a wicked place. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. But he's been called by God to go to a place that needs truth, and his name means son of truth. And so he's supposed to go to that place and deliver the truth, deliver the good news, and help this entire city to repent. It actually says go to the city of Nineveh and preach against it. 
Now, it's not just saying like, hey, you need to change from your wicked ways. It's saying everything that you do is wrong. All the way that you're living, everything about your life is actually headed in the opposite direction of the story of God for your life. He said, go and not preach repentance. Go and preach against it. Preach against the entire city and their way of life and the things that they are doing. And so you have the son of truth who has been called to go to this place, Nineveh, and preach against it because of the wickedness that exists in that city that God is now aware of. Now, if you're talking about Nineveh and you start to kind of see that Jonah's taking a little different route, let's just assume just for a moment, just for easy kind of visual here, Nineveh is here, Jonah is here, and Tarshish, which was referenced in the scripture, is here. So Jonah starts here, God calls him, says, hey, you know, son of truth, I want you to go to Nineveh and preach against it because I have seen and heard the wickedness of it has come up to me. And I want you to go and speak, son of truth, the truth to this dark and wicked city. So Jonah turns his back on Nineveh and wants to go to Tarshish. He goes by way of Joppa. So he comes over here. He catches a cruise ship. It actually says that he paid his fare. So he wasn't kind of stealing a free ride. It says he paid his fare. Then he got on board. And then from Joppa, he went to Tarshish. Now... If you're talking about Nineveh, we already understand it was a wicked place. We understand that it was, you know, some immorality was taking place. If you do a lot of different studies, there's a lot of different things in the historical context of Nineveh, where it was, who was in power there. It was kind of a hodgepodge uh, throughout history of the people that lived there and the people that ruled there. But what we need to understand is it was kind of this ancient Assyrian city in, in the upper Mesopotamia, you know, region there. And in modern day, it's kind of northern Iraq. It's kind of the Mosul, Mosul area, the city there in northern Iraq. And so this is a place that still kind of exists, although it's obviously adapted to its present context and surroundings. So it's a wicked, nasty place where people are not living in any way in the ways that they should that honor and please God. To the contrary, you have Tarshish. Now, we don't know anything about the spiritual climate of Tarshish, but what we do know is that if you do studies on Tarshish, it's not really a city that is clearly defined in history. It could be one of three or four different cities, but we do know that it is right on the shore of the Tigris River. And so what we see is that it's, it's kind of a shore, it's a port. Um, throughout history, it could have been a place that they did a lot of an industry and there were metals and things that they were able to make and they were able to sell them and, and ship them away. But what we do know is imagine that it is, because it's right there on the river, people are taking boats to that place. It is a destination. It's almost like a, a port of call for the cruise ship. It is the place that you go for vacation. It's a place that you would go to visit. It's not a place that necessarily you would go to live. You would come and get a job for a season, and then you would go back to wherever you're from. You would leave your family there, come to that place. And so you have this wicked, dark city over here, and then you have this kind of destination port over here. So imagine if you're just kind of doing the, the, what we see here. You've got the darkness over there. You've got the light over here. And God was calling the son of truth to go and be the light in the darkness. But Jonah wanted to go and be the light in the light. God doesn't need us to be the light in the light. He needs us to be the light in the darkness. Right? And so Jonah, instead of doing what God asked him to do, Instead of going to Nineveh, going to this place of wickedness, he actually goes to this port of call. He, he says, no, I, I'm actually not going to do what God desires me to do. I'm not going to kind of pursue the will of God for my life for this season. I'm actually going to go to Joppa, pay my fare, get on board the boat, and head towards this place 
it's nice to kind of get away for a little while. I, I love this verse. The reason I love it is because it makes no sense. Um, where it says, after he paid the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish, listen to this, to flee from the Lord. Some translations, depending on what you're reading today, may say flee the presence of the Lord. So here is the son of the truth who is attempting to get on a boat and sail to a city because he believes that God is not there. He, he believes that he can get away from the presence of God in that place. Interestingly, though, Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10 say this. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. He was trying to flee the presence of God. He was trying to get away. Now, here's, here's what I want us to know this morning. I want us to know that you might be able to disobey your way out of the plans of God, but nothing can take you away from the presence of God. And I say might because I'm not even sure. Like, I'm not sure what your theology is, what you believe about God and his sovereignty and his plans for your life. But you might be able, maybe, maybe, huge maybe, you might be able to disobey your way out of the plans of God for your life. But you can never get away from the presence of God in your life. And here's what I mean. If God calls you to Nineveh, it's possible that you could turn your back on Nineveh and get away from God's plan for your life. But even when you get to Tarshish, God's there. Even when you get on a boat in Joppa, God's there. Even when you find yourself in the middle of the sea, God's there. Where can I go to escape your presence? Nowhere. Nowhere. So you might be able, like I don't know where you're at spiritually this morning. I don't know where your heart's at. You might be able to disobey your way out of the plans of God for your life. But you can never get away from the presence of God in your life. That's important because I know for a lot of us, we're walking around trying to figure out like, <coughs> how do I experience God? How do I find God's presence? Like we just sang about, right? Holy Spirit. You are welcome here. And I, I've said this a bunch. We're not actually inviting God into a place he already isn't. We're actually saying, let us become more aware of your presence that's already here. Like, I'm actually just giving you permission to be where you already are. I, I'm letting go of control. I'm letting go of, you know, my plans and my thoughts about how this thing should be. I, I, I'm actually, you know, I don't know if any of you have this. And so if you do, I apologize if this Sounds like I, I'm offended by anything that's on your bumper sticker. But has anybody like you've seen that God is my co-pilot? No, 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 he's really not. Like, really, he's in control. Like, he's the pilot. He is inviting you to ride in the car with him as he drives the car. Unless you choose to say, no, 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 I don't want to give you control. And even then, he is still with you. Like, you might be able to disobey your way out of the plans of God, but nothing can take away the presence of God in your life. So let's keep reading Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break it up. Now, I'm just going to read one verse right here. Sometimes we read two or three or four or five or six at a time. We're just reading one right now because this is going to shape some of the things that you think about God for the rest of your life. Jonah chapter 1, verse 4. Everybody kind of focus in here. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, 
and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. We most often assume that every storm in our life is caused by the enemy. Don't we? We just kind of assume if bad things... God doesn't make bad things happen to good people, right? Surely not. That, that's not. That's not how it works. God's a good, good father. And so he wouldn't send a storm. He wouldn't send winds. What we read here is that the Lord sent a great wind, and that wind on the sea stirred up, and it created a violent storm, so much so that it was about to rip the boat apart. What if the storms in our lives weren't sent by the enemy to destroy us? What if the storms in our life were sent by God to get our attention? Like, what if the things that you're facing right now, which aren't designed to kill you, they're just designed to get your attention. Like, they're not designed, like, in God's economy, because we know the end of the story, let me just go ahead and tell you, Jonah doesn't die here. Like, if you're unfamiliar with the story, Jonah's not dead at the end of this storm God sent his way. He actually is just redirected from Tarshish, where he was fleeing to, back into the water that eventually leads him back to Nineveh. What if the storms in our lives are not sent by the enemy to destroy us? What if they are sent by God to get our attention? How does that reshape the way that we filter what we are experiencing? Now, I believe that the enemy attacks us. Scripture tells us that you know, the enemy is a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. I think he wants to destroy us. I think he wants to keep us from the plans of God. I think he wants to discourage us. I think he sends things our way that are designed to distract us and to destroy us. I believe that with all of my heart. But not every bad thing that's happening in my life was sent by the enemy to kill me. Sometimes it was my own turning away from the plans of God that even got me into the sea where the storm comes up. I got me here, not God, not the enemy. My own disobedience put me in a place where a storm was necessary for me to be redirected back to the plans of God. And so what if it's your disobedience that created the storm in your life? What if it was God creating a storm around you just to get your attention? Because God could have let him run. Have you ever thought about that? Just misdirection over here, sleight of hand, magician trick, great storyteller God. We're focused on the whale. But think about this truth. When Jonah was called to Nineveh, he turned his back and he headed towards Tarshish. And God could have let him go. God could have let him run. God could have let him chart his own course and just go to Joppa and pay for his fare and get in a boat and sail to Tarshish. But instead, God pursued him. God chased him. God's presence was there every step of the way. But God's plan was pursuing Jonah. So let's keep reading in verses 11 through 13. The sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him. They had to wake him up to ask him, by the way. He was asleep. Very similar to when the storm showed up and Jesus and the disciples were in the boat and Jesus was asleep. Very cool imagery there. But they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. 
Instead, the men did their best rowing back to the land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. I believe, because it's been true in my life and, and just the experience I've had and the years of ministry, when I listen to people tell their stories, I believe once we've been disobedient, we know how to get back on track. I don't think we have to have a third party, an outside source, tell us what to do. I think we know how to get back on track. And so here Jonah's just kind of admitting, hey, listen, it's my fault. If you'll get me off this boat, the seas will calm down. But then listen to what these men did. Now, these men are not bad men. I, I love this part of the story because sometimes we think, you know, because they were not, you know, they were not godly. They weren't praying to Jehovah God. Like maybe they're the bad guys. Like they're actually pretty good, you know, kind of nice guys. They let this guy on their boat, right? And then when the storm's coming, they could have immediately thrown him off the boat. He says, listen, if you'll just get me off the boat, the storms will calm down. And then did you read what it said in verse 13? Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not. Here's the truth that you and I all know. You cannot outwork your disobedience. Like you can't outwork it. Right? You, you can't be disobedient and then just like start trying to be better now. Like It takes a work of God and his grace and mercy in your heart and in your life, it did in mine, to make us right again. It, it takes a place of humility that says, I was wrong, and I'm going to turn away from my disobedience and reorient my life about the things of God. It's not just rowing harder. Like, I, I contend that there are some of us in this room today that are just rowing as hard as we can, and yet the storm's still brewing all around us, and we're not making any headway into trying to get back to the place that we know we're supposed to be. Quit working so hard. Confess your sins to God. Confess your disobedience to God. Allow Him to calm the storms in your life, and then reorient your life back to His plans. Jonah 1, 17 says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. It's the last verse in chapter 1. The Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. Don't miss the sleight of hand that's taking place over here. Don't miss the misdirection over here. Don't focus your attention so much on the whale that you miss who sent the whale. Right? What did it say? The Lord provided a huge fish. What did the Lord do in this story? He called Jonah because there was a city that needed the truth, and he was the son of truth. Go to Nineveh and do something. Declare the truth. Preach against it. I've heard of its wickedness. Preach against it. Go and declare the truth. Jonah chooses to turn his back. He goes and he gets in a boat. God sends a storm. You know, the storm's coming. The guy's like, what are we supposed to do? And he's like, throw me overboard. They try to outrow it. They don't. What we didn't read here is that as soon as they throw Jonah overboard, the winds die down. The storm goes away. God made that happen. And not only that, but Jonah's now in the water. And God provided a huge fish. And Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. God has a plan. God has a plan. Now, maybe you're afraid to give up control. Let me just stop that. Maybe you are living under the illusion that you are in control. But if you're not allowing God to lead your life, then you are actually positioning yourself 
to be swayed and thrown and impacted and pushed off course and sad one day and happy the next by the circumstances of life that you face. Like, if you don't give God control, you're actually saying, I'm giving the circumstances of my life control over what happens to me and how I respond. So, imagine yourself in the place where Jonah started. God calling you to do something. You have a choice, just like Jonah did. Turn towards the plans of God. Give up control. Say, God, I, I don't, I don't want to do this. I'm not sure how this is going to play out. I'm not sure what you're actually even calling me to. I'm not a big fan of this, God, but like, if this is what you want my life to be about, I'm in. Or, God, I don't want to do that, so I'm not. This is what I want my life to be about. That's your choice. You have that choice every day. I have that choice every day. But here's where I think we've missed the story of God. God is just as much with you here as he is over here. Right? God brewed up a storm over here. He didn't do that from a distance. He did that from right there on the sea. Jonah gets thrown overboard. The seas die down. And God provides a big fish to swallow Jonah up where he lives for three days and three nights. Because God wasn't waiting over there for Jonah to show up. God was right here too. Don't miss the sleight of hand. Don't miss the misdirection. God is pursuing you. He's pursuing you towards the plans that he called you to. And he's pursuing you in your disobedience. Where can I go to escape your presence? Nowhere. Like, let me just bring it down into really concise, clear words. Nowhere is where I can go to escape the presence of God. Your disobedience might be able to keep you from the plans of God, but nothing you can do causes you to escape the presence of God. If you don't leave today with any other truth than that, it was worth whatever they charged you to get in the door a minute ago. Right? Like, it was worth it to know that God is pursuing you. God could let you run away, but he chooses not to. I've got four kids. I talk about them all the time. I'm not sure I'd have anything to preach if I didn't have stories about my kids. The other day, we were walking in a parking lot. We got the kids out of the car. We were going into, I don't remember specifically, but I'm sure it was a Mexican restaurant. And we got out of the car, and we started heading towards the Mexican restaurant. Our kids are 11, 9, 6, and 4. My 6-year-old is fearless. Tucker's not afraid of anything. And so here's what Tucker did. He did what a lot of kids do. He jumps out of the car, and he starts running towards the Mexican restaurant. 
I could have let him run. But you know what I knew that he didn't know? There was a car turning the corner at the edge of the building that didn't see Tucker because they were on their cell phones. So they made the turn, and he wasn't in imminent danger. Like, there was enough time for me to scream at them and throw a rock and hit their car and get their attention. But instead, what I did is I ran after Tucker and grabbed him by the arm and pulled him back to me. It's the image of God chasing you in choices that could harm you because he's a good, good father. He loves you. And I, I believe with all of my heart, you may not, I believe that God will allow us to run away. I believe that God will allow us to just pursue everything that we're trying to pursue with our own life. And he said, nope, I don't want to go there. I don't want to go there. I'm going here. And you just keep moving. Like, I believe that God would let you stay on that boat and not tell the guys it's your fault. And I believe that God would allow you just to kind of let the storm keep brewing. And I believe eventually that boat probably would have made it to Tarshish. And I believe that God would have allowed Jonah just to like build a house in Tarshish, hang out, fish every afternoon. Like, I think God will allow you to be as disobedient as you choose to be for as long as you choose to be disobedient. But I think every step of the way, he's right there, brewing up a storm to get your attention, providing a whale that can swallow you up, that keeps you safe until you turn your heart back to him and say, okay, I'm in. But that's next week's story. The story of Jonah is not about a whale. It's about a God who loved the unlovable people of Nineveh enough to give them a second chance and call the son of truth to come to them. The story of Jonah is not about a whale. It's about pursuing Jonah even in his disobedience and giving him a second chance and then a third chance to make things right and to get back on track doing the plans of God. Here's the question for all of us today. Who do you know that is Nineveh? Like who's wicked and you're convinced like there's no hope for them? What if God's calling you to be their hope? What if God's calling you to be their truth? Who do you know that's Nineveh? And maybe even more difficult to answer than that, are you convinced that your disobedience is too much for God? Are you convinced that a long time ago he just wrote you off and left you and said, hey, there's no hope for you? You decided to turn your back on my plan and you're trying to escape my presence. And are you convinced that like you're just more disobedient than God has grace for? What if God is pursuing you? You can't outrun him. You can't flee his presence. You can't get away from him. No, he sends a storm to get your attention. He sends a whale to keep you safe because his desire is to be with you and to give you a story that's for his glory and for your good. Let's pray together. God, I thank you today that the story of Jonah is in the Bible. Just as simple as that. I just thank you for the story of Jonah. I thank you that even irreligious people know this story because of the big whale. God, you're such an incredible storyteller. 
you're this incredible narrator, having us focus our attention on a whale. All the while, the story is really about your pursuit of us. That you called us to go and love unlovable people and to speak truth into wickedness. And even when we turn our back on you, you pursue us. You even stir up storms to get our attention. But when we're in danger, you provide a safe way for us to escape. So thank you for the story of a man and a whale. But more importantly, God, thank you for the story of your pursuit of us. I pray for every person in this room who feels unlovable, who feels like they have gone too far for your grace, too far for your mercy. They feel like they've been more disobedient than you can still love. Today, God, would you let them feel your presence? Would you let them experience your goodness? God, I pray that you would call us continually to be truth to wickedness and help us to expand our minds to know that no one is too far for you to reach down and receive them back. Let our lives be transformed around the idea that you are still pursuing every one of us. In Jesus' name I pray. Thanks again for listening today. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or facebook.com slash cantonchurchga.com.